listeners, you're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies. We're your hosts, Sarah Cho. And Sam Collier. And today we have a very special guest, Paul Michael Thompson. He's an actor, playwright, and co-artistic director of the Story Theater in Chicago. As an actor, he has worked with Steppenwolf Theater, Chicago Shakespeare, and Windy City Playhouse, among others. His plays have been produced by Avalanche Theater, The Impostors Theater Company, Other Theater, Arc Theater, and the Story Theater, of which he's a founding ensemble member. He holds a BFA in acting and a BA in Africana Studies from the University of Arizona and is passionate about new work, intersectional feminism, and rereading the same books over and over and over again. (laughs) Paul Michael, welcome to Beckett's Babies. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're so glad to have you on the show. And because you put this in your bio, I just have to ask, uh, what book are you rereading? Or did you reread recently? Oh, yeah. Um, I've been rereading so many of them uh, (laughs) during this time. Um, I just finished rereading Less by Andrew Sean Greer, um, which was the 2018 Pulitzer Prize winner for fiction. And in talking to folks, have either of you read it? No. Okay, so in talking to folks... (laughs) You either love it or hate it, and I am absolutely enamored with it. I think it's so good. I think the prose is so smart and gorgeous, and it's the kind of book that I read, and it kind of takes my breath away, and I'm like, oh, I will never be this good of a writer, Um, but in the best way. Um, (laughs) So uh, I just finished rereading that. Cool. Yeah. What, what, uh, can you give us like a short synopsis of what it what's it about totally so it's about an author a writer who has just gone through a breakup maybe six months prior to the start of the book uh he's middle-aged uh he lives in san francisco and he receives a wedding invitation to his former lover's wedding uh, and Whoa. so he, he knows that, you know, for the sake of his pride, he can't just deny, deny the request to go to the the wedding and RSVP. No. So instead he tries to like cobble together this world expedition so that he'll be conveniently out of town during the wedding, <laughs> um, to save his pride. So he does all of the things writers do, right? He goes and gives an interview in New York and then he flies, to Paris for a writer's workshop and he's up for an award in Italy. And then he um, goes to Morocco for his birthday and like writes while he's there. And then he goes to a writer's retreat in India. So you follow his travels all over um, the world, but it, it's, it's comedic. Uh, it's lighthearted. I think that's why some people were frustrated that it, maybe won the Pulitzer because it's a little, I think some people would describe it as like frothy, but it's not the subject matter that makes it good for me. It's literally those lines of prose that you read and are like, holy shit, like that's how you coin a metaphoric image or like that Mm. is how you use language in a way that sets the tone of what this book is supposed to be about um in like a macrocosm so so yeah so I'm a big fan I totally recommend it and if anybody reads it and hates it you can you can blame me (laughs) (laughs) oh I love it 
Um, so one of the questions we like to ask on the show is, what was your life like before theater? Can you tell us your earliest memory? So I was just telling you before we started recording that I have been listening all week to Beckett's Babies in anticipation of today and just find <laughs> it so charming and also wanted to point out one thing that hasn't gotten brought up before is the music is so good. <laughs> like intro music. So shout out to whoever did, whomever did that. Um, love it. So I've been thinking about this question and my earliest memory, like hand on heart, truth be told, is I think I'm like four years old and I see this photo of Jackie Kennedy. I don't know where that would have been or why Um, because we were we didn't have any like fun coffee table books we were not high class enough for that um in mesa arizona but this photo of jackie kennedy and she's wearing a pearl necklace and i remember thinking how lucky girls were because they got to wear pearl necklaces (laughs) they're so beautiful and how I was so jealous because I would never get to wear a pearl necklace. Little did you know. <laughs> Little did I know. My the wealth of possibilities yes. available to you. Ah, That's my first memory. That is so cute. Uh, that's a beautiful memory. Oh, thank you. It's, you know, only slightly embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you go from that four-year-old to the to start doing theater. <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say to the dashing man I am today. I was about to say that, but then I was um, like, I have to stay on track with the question. The extremely <laughs> muscular hunk that I am now. Um, uh, so I, w- I did my first play when I was seven. And ironically, there was like this girl in my um, second grade class that I wanted to impress and thought she was, I had a big what crush was her on name? her. Her name was Morgan Sawyer and we just <laughs> DM'd on Instagram two days ago. No way. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Keep a friend for a long time. Um, that's my motto. Um, <laughs> and she was going to do the school play like over the summer. And so I wanted to get close to her. So I thought I'll do the school play over the summer. And it was the Wizard of Oz. And they're looking back on like my journey into theater, I have just been so blessed and lucky and fortunate and privileged because there were so many wonderful role models that I had from a very early age. So like it could have that summer camp, you know, that we did could have been taught by anyone. Right. It was, I think the oldest kid was 11. So it was a bunch of young kids doing the Wizard of Oz, there was only like 10 of us were we're using, you know, construction paper to make the costumes and in the set and whatever. But it was taught by this woman, um, Natalie Messersmith, who was a professional actor in Phoenix. And she just happened to be the daughter of my kindergarten teacher. Whoa. Um, So she would do this, like Mesa Public Schools, summer camp for theater and she really pushed us i mean she was talking about choice making and like coming to rehearsal off book and 
here's like what blocking is and all that stuff. When a lot of the teachers were kind of saying, oh, just like give them a poem to read and like have them stand center stage and then walk off because they're, you know, they're six and seven and eight years old. (laughs) They can't do much. And she totally trusted us to like tell this, you know, hour long story together. And that was my, my first exposure to theater. And then Phoenix, I don't know, have either of you been, been to Arizona? Only briefly. Okay. Like I drove through it. Well, you'll have to check it out someday. I, do. I will. I will. It's so funny. When I was there, I totally, it's like the cliche thing. When I was there, I totally took it for granted. And now as an adult, I'm like, wow, Phoenix was actually kind of lit. Um, but <laughs> other than the conservative politics. Um, but Phoenix has a really kind of thriving youth theater community and and community theater. So I was, and I have been, I I signed with my first agent when I was 11, um, did my first professional like equity show when I was 11 as well. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I was a little bit of a child actor. So I've been doing it for a long time and there's this great community there where I was getting to do roles that I um, really cared about at a, at a pretty young age. When I was 16, we did um, the Arizona premiere of Rent. <laughs> wow. And, yeah, wow. Uh, at a youth theater. And, <clears throat> um, you know, when you're 16, gosh, everything uh, does feel like larger than, you know, like a rock opera. Um, in general. So it was kind of fitting. But I I remember feeling this desire to like deliver truth and authenticity and a a strong performance. And we were doing like four to five week runs of like five shows a weekend, which I just thought was normal for like youth theater. But then getting to college and, and meeting folks who had gone grown up in other communities that they were like, no, you do like one weekend of shows and then the mm. show closes, you know? So I, I I remember like learning how to pace myself in a run wow. <laughs> vocally at like 16, which is just so funny to think about now. So I feel, I feel really lucky to have grown up in that community and um, gotten so much experience even before I went to college. Does, Mor- does Morgan Sawyer know that um, it's because of her? That all you know, I'm sure I've, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not good at keeping any cards close to my chest. So I'm sure I've <laughs> over the years. I'm sure it's in a, in a kindly written card somewhere that I've thanked her for that. <laughs> and, and your parents were like fully on board and supported you in the. Well, that's interesting. My, my parents are so wonderful. They have totally been very supportive of me as as an artist my whole life you know my mom my poor mom had to like drive me to all these rehearsals because the other thing was that we grew we grew up in mesa which is kind of like a um you know like the ugly stepchild suburb of phoenix um (laughs) and so we had to in order to go do these shows we had to drive to like the the fancier suburbs like snotsdale um and so my mom would would drive me like you know forty five minutes one way and and then wow. to get to rehearsal and then she would stay in the car and um, read her like Mary Higgins Clark book and and 
go on walks around the mall. And like, she was just so, oh yeah, she was so selfless. And she did that until I turned, I mean, the day I turned 16, she was like, get your ass to the DMV um, so that you can drive yourself to rehearsal. My goodness. Um, But I am one of four children and I'm the, I'm the middle, I'm the third of four. And so I remember when I was 12, maybe 13, my agent at the time was like, I think you should move him out to Los Angeles um, to try and, you know, do, do the pilot season thing and, and try to kind of, I don't know, get on Disney channel or like whatever you do. Um, And not only financially didn't, did it not make sense um, for our family, but my mom was like, you know, I have three other kids and like, right. It's just as important that we support Paul Michael in his career as an artist as like we support Karen in taking her to volleyball practice, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I come from a family of athletes. So uh, my mom was a two time All-American volleyball player. Uh, My sisters both play volleyball and um, coach volleyball. My mom actually is 60. 62 maybe she'll be 63 this month I guess and she still plays on a volleyball league with my sisters which is really (laughs) that's so cool Um, yeah they play every Thursday uh it's awesome Um, I hope they're not playing volleyball right now though they're definitely not playing right now (laughs) (laughs) definitely not playing right now um but except maybe like in the backyard who knows Uh Um, yeah but so I come from a family of, of athletes and, and we hadn't really had an artist in the family before. Um, so I think they're all very um, supportive without necessarily totally always getting it. Right. But, but that's kind of, I think there's something kind of beautiful about like, you don't have to get it to mm-hmm. support it. And, and the other thing was that I was always really academic too. So that I think was something that they understood, right? Like they could quantify a 4.0 and like good test scores mm-hmm. more readily and like the pride that comes with that more readily than they could with, you know, like, oh, I got this callback but didn't get the role or like whatever, whatever. Um but I, but I do, I will say that I think that I, they have been really supportive and I'm really grateful for that. So how did you, when, how and when did you start writing plays of your own? Well, I've kind of always been a writer. I mean, if you, I'm sure this is, is actually, in fact, I know this is true for both of you because I listened to your interviews. Um, <laughs> if we like look back at our adolescence you're like oh I was always doing the thing I just didn't mm. know thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so like I but I would always keep my writing very separate from my theater in like my art um so even when we had the chance to write one acts and stuff in in high school drama I would actually choose not to do that I'm just gonna act in these but I'm going to go write this short story or this poem and then like enter it into the district writing contest, you know? So I was like keeping my, my 
disciplines very separate from each other. And it wasn't until um, 2014, I went to uh, the New York Theater Intensives uh, run by the Ensemble Studio Theater in New York um, the summer before my senior year of college. And I went there as an actor because it was uh, like a 10-week um, acting, writing, directing program. And I was like, well, I'll take the directing and the writing classes, but I, I'm, I'm really going there as an actor. I thought I wanted to move to New York and thought it would be a good kind of foot in the door. Um, and And so for the first time, I was kind of forced to write plays and then it was like this whole world opened up and it was like duh this is <laughs> this is this makes so much sense um and yeah I've kind of been doing it ever since and really only within the last maybe I would say only within the last three or four years have I felt the confidence to say you know what I am a playwright. I've written, mm. I've written a bunch of plays now. Some of them have even been produced and a couple of them are really good. And I can call myself a playwright and I'm not an imposter for that. And I'm not a fraud and like, no one's going to um, see the man behind the curtain and like, know that I'm a, I'm a fake. You know, I think that took me a while to, to have that confidence to say. So I'm, I'm really grateful that I, that I do feel that now. Hmm. I think I've always, man, even in grad school, I was like, uh, I'm not a playwright, even though I'm here for playwriting. Right. Even though I'm getting <laughs> like, an MFA in playwriting. I was, yeah. I was like, I don't feel like a playwright. Um, mm -hmm. It took me a while to, to kind of realize, well, you know what? I've written a lot since right. like 19 or something. So I'm like, this is, you kind of have to be that reflective to, to just sort of look back. Totally. Um, well, and I think the thing that was so nice for me, and maybe this is for you coming from a performer background too, is like once I started writing, my understanding of dramatic structure was so inherent to who I was because I had literally been doing it since I was seven. Mm -hmm. You know, so I was like, oh, I actually you don't got to tell me about character arc. Like I've been playing, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I uh, like, I, I know what kind of characters um, are not fun to play. So I won't write any of those and um, things like that, where I've been, I had been reading plays and consuming theater for so long that when it came down to start writing them, of course, it's always an arduous task, but I found that like, I understood dramatic structure in a way that that was really helpful um well love to segue to your play um oh my gosh. i'm so honored <laughs> that you read oh it's yes. so good so good um the play is called the geo at or the goat or who is um simone and holy cow i mean it was a real page turner for me i was like oh <laughs> yeah, my god me, me too this, these girls and it's so funny that you said that you came from a family of athletes because this play is about these group of uh, Olympians are like they're in Sweden. They're about their their um, gymnasts, and so I feel like you really captured the the athleticism and like what you thought about that and made it that was theatrical. And so it was just yeah, I it was is it on 
new play exchange by chance or thank you so much um um i'm putting it on new play exchange this week um i had a uh we call them roundtable readings. Um, we had a roundtable reading of it via Zoom at the story uh, last week and <clears throat> got some great actors together and our ensemble. Um, so I got to hear it out loud, which I was really grateful for. Um, and am now making a couple edits to it before I upload it. Because the thing about New Play Exchange that is so vulnerable is like you put that you put whatever draft of that play up there and then like anybody can read it and make decisions about your <laughs> yeah. writing. And That's you have true. no idea who is reading it. <laughs> yeah. I know. That's the craziest That's, yeah. thing. I had the experience yesterday. I don't want to get too off topic. I had the experience yesterday. I'm sure this has happened to both of you, but but this was my first time where someone I didn't know wrote not one, but two reviews of my Whoa, play. And I was so like, cool. wait, yeah. wait, wait, I didn't pay you to do this. Who <laughs> are you? I, I was, I was, I was so like, uh, blown away. So yeah, Sarah, I will totally be uploading the, this play. <laughs> and I am so grateful that you responded to it. Um, it's been something that I've been obsessed with Olympic gymnastics for a really long time. <laughs> and it, it was so fun to get to nerd out in this play about like, you know, Yurchenko's and um, Geiger's and uh, wolf turns and stuff like that when mm. I don't normally get to do that in the theater. Um, <laughs> and I, I, it was a play that uh, kind of took me a while to figure out like, what the heck is this play about? And um kind of connecting to this idea of being an underdog and those people <clears throat> that exist, you know, like the character of Simone who are the goats and things seemingly, whether this is true or not, but we perceive things as coming really easily to them. Mm. Um, and how infuriating that can be if you consider yourself someone who's like, you know, just a hard worker, but maybe not as naturally talented. Um, so I, I'm so happy to have found my kind of hook into this, this play because the characters are so far from me in some ways, but and definitely an athletic ability. Um, but in other ways, I feel really close to them, especially to that protagonist. So, Paul Michael, I want to ask, because one of the things I love about your, your playwriting is your use of stage directions. Um, and I don't think I've ever read um, plays that use stage directions in quite the way that you do. They feel like... Um, a kind of channel, a way to channel your own voice, but also maybe the voice of the play itself. Mm -hmm. um, like, like kind of an omniscient narrator would in a novel. Um, but they're very funny and, uh, and often, you know, tongue in cheek or sarcastic or give us a little bit of insight into a moment that, um, that, that we wouldn't know otherwise. And, and I'm, so I'm just wondering about 
how you've kind of developed that approach to stage directions. Has it, did it come naturally to you or is it something you've kind of intentionally explored? Well, I appreciate, first of all, just like you noticing that. I mean, I think um, love is paying attention, you know, and it is so kind when, when you feel like someone notices mm. something that you're doing um, and, and paid attention to, to <laughs> because some people skip the stage directions, right? And it's like, no, I put so much love into those. <laughs> Um, Nobody's going to skip your stage directions. <laughs> <laughs> I think that <clears throat> the stage directions for me are a way to set the tone of the play. Because a lot of my plays have characters that are very earnest. Uh, Sam, I think especially the ones that you have read have had some some very mm. earnest characters. Mm-hmm. Um there's almost a difficulty and and they really do kind of toe this line between comedy and tragedy. And so what I think the stage directions allow is, is for me to say to my audience, it's okay to laugh um, because there are such like overt jokes uh, in the stage directions. So then you know how to read the rest of the play. Um, And, and, it also is is a way for me to make sure that I am staying authentic when I'm writing. Because if I'm doing kind of clinical, you know, she looks over her right shoulder and crosses down left, that actually doesn't feel like the voice in my head that's telling the story. The uh... voice in my head is actually way more like, and then she looks at her like, are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> that... that voice seems way more authentic. So I I try to give that voice permission to come through, even though that may not be how plays are quote, you know, traditionally written, but also as someone, as someone who uh, reads a lot of new plays because um, of our emerging playwright residency program at the story. um, I feel like, anything I can do as a playwright to make every line that you read something that you can Mm -hmm. smile at or laugh at or cry at, you know, that nothing is a throwaway, including the stage directions. Um, That feels important to me. Yeah. That's one. I think that was one of the the joys of reading. It was, it was the stage directions too, for me, like the, the, um, the sarcasm. I mean, I was just laughing throughout it all and but even though the situation with the girls was just kind of really sad and like upsetting and then Simone's her background her story with the relationship with her mom and um and you know but it so I think that's one of the joys was this all these like levels of emotions I was experiencing through it I was like oh my god that's so funny like to call out how weird or ridiculous this feelings are this moment Mm. where these characters are and um yeah, so it it was like light and uh, emotional, but it was just also it was just it was great. Like that's I think it was just it was just fun to read. Thank you so much. I it, it it is still such a young play, so I am I you know this is truly like the second round of feedback I'm ever hearing on it um, <laughs> right now live for all you listeners <laughs> out there. <clears throat> you're, you're witnessing this vulnerable moment. 
um, between the three of us. And uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm really grateful that you took the time to read it and that you enjoyed it. It's, it's a play that like I love, but you never know if somebody else is going to love it. So, well, listeners, check it out. And yeah. we're all just sitting at home anyway. So, what else? <laughs> Truly. I was just going to ask. So, when did you feel it was ready for uh, you to share this work to mm. your group? That's a great question. Um, I wonder if you two will relate to this. One, first thing I want to say is like, go before you're ready. Because I really, I I am such a leap in the net will appear kind of person, even though I'm also a Virgo uh, and very <laughs> <laughs> uh, methodical. Um, and, but I, but I do believe that at some point you gotta, you gotta share the baby because if not, you're going to become too precious about it. And then you're, I think actually share it when you know it's not ready, because then you'll take any criticism and be like, yep, I knew that part wasn't good. Rather than if you think it's perfect and then you share it and then people are like, I have questions about scene three. You're like, no, no, this play is perfect. Um, and, the, and that's when <laughs> that I feel That is the most Virgo advice I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, this is how to take criticism. Um, no, it's, no, it's not perfect. Um, give a masterclass on that. Um, uh, oh, shoot. What was the other? Oh, but with this play, I feel like maybe this has happened for the two of you. There always comes a point. I remember the first time it happened for me with the first play that I that I wrote, which was called Leave Me Alone, um, and was a contemporary queer adaptation of Ivanov by Anton Chekhov. Um, and there was a point where it went from being a series of scenes to being a play. Mm. There was something about, I think I like did a through line through that like tied the beginning to the end. And then I was like, oh, it's a play now. And I feel that the, all of my plays are just series of scenes until one revision session and I can just feel it instinctually like now this is a play. So for The Goat, um, that came with, I was having a really difficult time ending it. And was was struggling because it felt like there were multiple maybe climaxes or multiple resolutions or multiple denouements. And so trying to figure out what is the ending. And um, I don't want to spoil it for anybody out there, but, but you all kind of, I mean, because the two of you read it, the kind of, there are a couple twists and turns that happen. But that kind of final, final one that happens um, at the end where one of the characters decides to turn another character in mm -hmm. uh, that felt like, Oh, yep. That's, that's the end of the play. Like this is actually what the, what the moment has, we're, we're putting these two characters that have been diametrically opposed and really very rarely even talk to each other, just talk about each other on stage together and making them talk about their conflict. And that's actually what this play is about. Mm -hmm. Um, and everything else, you know, you realize is just um, the theatricality 
um, of, of those stakes in that moment. But really, that conversation is, is what the play is about. So, so that's when I knew it was ready, when I finally ended it and was like, okay, now this is a play. And that realization came, like, taking some time, like, after you completed the play, or was it sort of during the process? Or well, uh, The realization that about the ending? Yeah, like, when, when did that mm. come about? Like, that's right- interesting. Um, that kind of came about in the moment. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of free writing. My process is kind of like, I do a ton of free writing of all different kinds of scenes, maybe a rough outline sometimes, but but other times not. And then once I've got this kind of hodgepodge collections of scenes, I try and put them together into a play. So for The Goat, I had, it's two acts. I had like all of act one, and all of act two, except the final scene. And then was kind of like going through my free writing, being like, is there anything here that I can mm, use? Wow, yeah. uh, and, and the thing that I kind of came across was this line. Um, There's a myth that winning is in everything. And it was made up by losers. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, yep, that's, that's this scene that is, uh, and then, you know, there's a, there's a note in my phone that's like underdog versus the goat, you know? And I was like, oh, yep, that's also this scene. So then realizing that I needed to actually put these two characters who say those things in the room together. Uh, yeah. That was kind of how that came about. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I wonder if we can um, briefly just talk about what it's like to be a co-artistic director, um, particularly of a storefront theater. Can you tell us a little bit about story theater and... Absolutely. Um, Well, a couple of things. One, I want to second everything that uh, the incredible playwright Beth Highland said on your mm. podcast about Chicago. I couldn't agree more. I think it is just the most incredible community. As someone who did not go to school here, I moved here and I really didn't know anyone or anything. And it is such a city that rewards hard work and staying power and being in the arena and like mm-hmm. getting your face dirty uh, and getting the shit kicked out of you. They like, <laughs> I have found that this city rewards that and, and, and is like, yeah, good for you. That was me too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have just been so grateful for the reception that we've received at the story in Chicago. Um, being a co-artistic director, I have to say, I would never want to be just an artistic director now because mm doing it with someone else. We have three, three co-artistic directors at my company. It's like a little triumvirate. Uh, I, I truly would not want to do it any other way because it, it makes it so much more egalitarian. There's so much less of a gatekeeping mentality or a hierarchy or honestly the pressure to be the tastemaker for the entire company. You know, I think that that is ultimately what an artistic director is supposed to do is like make sure that all of the plays that are selected and then produced 
reflect the vision and the values of the company. And to craft that vision as one person just isn't collaborative. Obviously, obviously, there's a history of incredible artistic directors in this country and in Chicago, and like good on them for being able to do that. I am so grateful for Brenna D'Astasio and Matt Boudrin, my co-artistic directors, because they bring ideas to the table and perspectives that I don't have. And because of that, and because of the generosity of our ensemble, um, there's seven of us in the ensemble, uh, we are able to kind of craft the aesthetic of our company collaboratively, which is the only way that I would want to do it. That's so beautiful to hear you say that. That I mean, it really, it truly sounds like you're a team, you know? A hundred percent. And we are also so lucky because we get to, because of our uh, emerging playwright residency program, which is kind of what the, the company centers around every year, um, we have one playwright who joins us for the entirety of the season. We produce a work of theirs that is ready for production, you know, when they apply a full length play and give that, uh, you know, a really great fully produced production. But then we spend the rest of their residency developing new work of theirs and uh, doing workshops and staged readings of of new plays of theirs. So we really get to know them. So So what's so great about it is that not only are we coming together as a team for the company, we also end up coming together as a team surrounding this one writer and all of our mission is the same, which is to give them the best year of writing that they have had and that make them so feel cool. so supported, wow. supported. And like, I, I, you know, we often hear, uh, if you want to unite people, like get them to, uh, to hate the same one person, uh, you know, like find a common enemy. But I also think the inverse is true. If we want to unite people, give them one person to rally around and to love on and to say, you know what, this isn't actually even about the story. This mm. is about our playwright in residence. This year, his name is Terry Guest. And he is, I truly believe, the next big thing. Um, and for all of us to kind of rally around him and say, okay, but think about Terry, think about Terry, think about his writing, that's think about, so cool. you know, wow. like, that's what the, that's what the, the, the program becomes about. And so, yeah, I, I just, I, I, um, everyone, and, and, and everyone has been so graceful with that. There's just been no ego surrounding that. So it's been really special. So then I imagine you read a lot of applications, you encounter yeah. a lot of, you know, uh, aspiring or emerging playwrights, what mm -hmm. advice would you give to our listeners who might be just kind of setting out on that journey? Yeah. Okay, I have two. And actually, the second is probably informed by the first. Um, the first is that I think in the arts community, because we are such an open, communicative, loving, compassionate community, which I'm obsessed with and like I only want to live my life in a you know compassionate positive open way I think sometimes we are afraid to have opinions or taste because we don't want to offend anyone 
And I think one of the best things you can do as a young artist is actually like start to craft what your taste is. Mm -hmm. I think there should be plays that you read that you say, this is not a good play. (laughs) I think you should go see shows and find what you like. And also equally important, find what you don't like. Mm -hmm. Because I think that being opinionated can sometimes get a bad rap, but it's the only way to make choices. You know, I, I, the, the number one thing that you can come into an audition room with as an actor or when you're starting a new play is your point of view. And if your point of view is neutral and that just like anything goes, it's just not going to be a very interesting work in my opinion. So, so not being afraid to have opinion while also recognizing that like your opinion is probably informed by your identity and your experience and that it's not the only right opinion, you know, that there are, are different strokes for different folks and that there's not one right way to do things. But, but that doesn't mean that you still shouldn't have, you know, your, your own taste um, and things that you, you like and don't like, which brings me to the second point, which is that, I get really frustrated when I read scripts that are so well-written, have amazing characters, great plot, but they're not plays. They're Netflix series. You know, there's there's nothing about them that makes them theatrical. There's Mm. nothing about them that makes me say, I have to sit in a theater with other human beings and watch this play. And Sam, that's what I was so obsessed with your writing when I first met you and just want to say like you are just one of the my favorite artists oh my that I've met this year <laughs> I'm curious because you're not only like thank you wildly talented and profound but also just an open heart you are just the, mm-hmm. the most l- like joyous light of a person that I've encountered in a very long time so just very grateful for that oh my but, god I'm blushing Oh, good. You can't see it because it's over the internet. Um, but, but one thing that I was obsessed with, um, Daisy Violet, your play, is, is how theatrical it was and how unapologetically theatrical it was. And I am, am so, I think that that is the life of theater. That is the future of theater. And where we get into the death of theater, whereas we, when we try to do what HBO can do better, mm-hmm. uh, Film and TV will always do straight realism better. It just will. And and I'm not someone who writes totally experimental plays, but I also want to make sure that all of my plays have to be witnessed in the theater with other bodies and with sharing presence. Um, that feels really important to me. So so that's like an opinion that I have that maybe other people don't agree with, but but that is, you know, that's an advice that I would give. God, thank you so much for saying that because I run into writers who's like, you know what, maybe writing a a one-act play will get me to write that half-hour comedy or pilot that's kind of the same, you know? (laughs) And I'm just Uh like, no, these are very two different mediums. (laughs) Or just just acting kind of like that writing a one-act play is a little easier. Just a little easier. Or that it's like yeah, because I, I also think, please go write that half hour comedy, but but 
don't think that that is a play. And if you think that, I just believe that you haven't seen enough theater. Mm-hmm. Because we've all experienced those moments where you sit and you collectively gasp as an audience or or even not gasp, just that intake of breath and you can feel the whole audience lean forward. And those experiences come from truly theatrical moments because that it, that kind of collective response we just don't get when i mean think about quarantine right you you are at your desk or in your bed with your laptop open watching the show on netflix while texting and checking instagram and you know there's nothing kind of collective about that experience mm. it's very individualized which is you know good for for film and TV, but it's, I, I'm so interested in the collective empathy that we can create with theater. Um, so keep theater theatrical is like my <laughs> motto. Well, and I love, I, I love the first part of your advice too, which is that yeah. you need to have opinions. I, mean, I think that's a really difficult thing for some of my students I've, I'm finding is, mm. um, I, I don't know if this I, I I have the sense that this is kind of a new thing. Um, I I think when I was in college, I remember my friends having lots of strong opinions, um, and and it seems to me that that particularly college students right now are almost afraid to have strong opinions. Of course. Mm. Well, and to their credit, that is probably. Um, it's fair that they are because mm-hmm. we, we live in an age where if I say my opinion on this podcast and in five years someone listens to it mm-hmm. and doesn't like it, they can pull up the receipts. Mm-hmm. And and that, you know, Gen Z has grown up knowing that that is a reality, knowing that anything that they say, they better be sure of because 10 years from now, someone can pull it up and say, remember yeah. Said this. That's really true. And that's really scary. I mean, that scares me. And people can come after them. I mean, total exactly. strangers. Yeah. We're constantly growing and we're so afraid as a society to say, I didn't know what I was talking about, you know, or I was wrong. Or, you know, we're so petrified to say, I actually was acting like an expert, but I had no idea what I was saying. And I was in fear and I was, you know, I was feeling X, Y, and Z. We're we're so taught that we're supposed to have the answers at at all times. Um, So I, I, I get their fear, but I, but I also think that, yeah, neutrality is just, it's, it's the death of art. Um, You gotta have, you gotta have opinions. Right. Well, and part of why, I think part of why, strong opinions are so exciting when we encounter them is that there is risk there, right? I mean, that's what makes them, yeah, it's that courage to say, I like this thing that everybody else hates and I'm not afraid Mm -hmm. to say it. That's exciting. Yes, Sam, yes. Or the the opposite, which is even more scary. Yeah. Right? Like, I think that... Okay, I'm just going to say it. I saw, finally during quarantine, I never watch movies, ever. Mm -hmm. But I was like, well, let's let's try it. And I saw- (laughs) Let's try watching a movie. (laughs) (laughs) And I saw 
Lady Bird and I liked it. I thought it was great, but I did not understand the hype from it. I literally watched it like last week. So maybe I should. Have seen it like- <laughs> I love that movie. Do you and love I it? Love- okay. Yeah, but it's okay because I love that we can disagree about it. Me too. I just, I ended up like <laughs> watching YouTube video essays on like the brilliance of Lady Bird because I was like, I want to understand. I want to get what everyone was obsessed with, with this movie. I thought it was like a really nice movie, but it was not, but also maybe I wasn't the, the prime audience. So, so that's also, you know, fair. Maybe it wasn't meant for me, which is also okay. I think the only part I liked about the movie was Lori Metcalf, the mom. She's so good. Yeah, so good. I was like, yep, she captured that that mom. Oh my god, she (laughs) so did. Yeah. Um, Oh, so one last question before we move to Glissons, I just want to ask is just to circle back on what you were talking about, you know, when that moment when you realize I'm a playwright, Mm -hmm. I've written all these plays, you know to have that identity um you know what what advice would you give to those playwrights the writers who you know who don't feel that yet Mm. Mm. uh do y'all know the quote by ira glass it's like so i feel like every every artist knows it because it's so like you hold it so dear to your heart i had it screenshot on my phone for years um sarah do you know what i'm talking about I think so. So there's this quote where he says, like, you got into art because you had some taste. When you're early in your career, the work that you're producing discourages you because you are not living up to your taste. But that is a good sign because it means that you you have a gauge of what is good and what is not good. Mm-hmm. You need to keep producing keep you know whatever that means for your art so keep writing keep painting keep acting whatever and eventually your work will start to get to the level the standard that you that you have set for yourself but that's what I mean it just it gave me so much heart about like oh that's why I get discouraged when I read a shitty draft of my play is not because I'm a terrible writer, but it's because my writing is not up to the standard that I know it can be. Mm. And the only antidote for that is to keep writing. Um, does that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, like just do, do the thing. I feel like we spend so much time talking about doing the thing or like if you're me, you spend so much time uh listening to podcasts or watching interviews about like how famous people do the thing to try and like find out what the what the um Mm. secret is what's the what's the shortcut and like there is no shortcut you just have to write you just have to keep writing Mm. yeah yeah that's so true but i will keep listening to those podcasts and, and try and find, <laughs> I will try to find how to become Susan Lori Parks. Um, you can definitely find out how to become Susan Lori Parks by listening to Beckett's Babies. And that oh is the God. tagline. <laughs> Hilarious. Well, before we move to Glistens, where can our listeners find you, Paul Michael? 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so if you are interested in learning more about the Story Theater 501c3, uh, no. you can go to <laughs> uh, all donations tax deductible. Um, you can go to thestorytheater.org. Um, that's theater with an R-E because we're pretentious. Um, and Instagram is at the Story Theater. Um, and then if you want to find me, paulmichaelthompson.com, there's no P in my last name, uh, or at paulmichaelt on Instagram. Although I recently went private, so I will have to accept your follow request. Um, big, big news. Um, or new play exchange, Paul Michael Thompson. Excellent. So many ways. So many All ways right. to connect. Well, let's move into glistens. This is the part of our show where we share things from the week that will stay with us. Um, Sarah, do you want to go first? Yes. Um, so what I've been enjoying doing during my uh, time of isolation is cooking. And I've just been following the New York Times cooking. I've been, yes. Um, you know, favorite cooks like David Chang that I really love, like follow him. And, and so I feel like the last week or so, I feel like I've really upped my like cooking game. Like, wow. Like I'm, I'm actually like slicing the scallions a certain way. <laughs> like <doing a> nice <laughs> like design and like, um, so it's been really fun. Um, and one of the things, a trick that I kind of known, but I didn't practice it until, you know, grocery shopping has been kind of hell um is taking the scallions the green onions and putting in a jar of water so you could like regrow constantly so oh, I've been, yeah like, reuse so i've been like reusing a lot of like different vegetables and growing them in my on my little tiny three by three kitchen <laughs> like it's just like tiny um so it's like, taking up all my space but um but it's been fun uh i really i love cooking so you put fun. the roots in water in case people don't know. You put the yes. roots in water and then more green onion grows from the roots. Yes. So right. Cool. Right. Yeah, it's really cool. And it grows so fast. I was like, it's crazy. Um yeah. And getting really creative with what's in my fridge or like in my pantry. Like, okay, I'm gonna try to make something out of this. <laughs> uh and getting creative and yeah. It's fun, fun. So yeah, Sarah, that's so yeah, cool. So- were you did you cook a lot before the breakdown of society yeah <laughs> uh yeah yeah I you know I grew up in um my mom used to own a restaurant like I grew up in the in the restaurant life and um I do like to cook but I just kind of this is very lazy cooking like I'm just gonna chop it and just throw it in and you know make and just it'll just take to taste delicious but I don't care about the look of it but now I've been kind of like like being more um what's the word like like I don't know like I don't know <laughs> fancy <laughs> artistic artistic and fancy and that's what I'm trying to go here <laughs> okay well my glisten is also on the food uh f- front uh which is that I just learned something that is totally life-changing which is that you can freeze whole lemons 
Um, oh yeah, tell me Sarah, this. I texted you about this. <laughs> you can, apparently, <laughs> I don't know how I went through so many years of my life not knowing this, but if you have lemons that you think are gonna get moldy before you can use them, mm-hmm. you can just put the whole lemon in the freezer, and then when you're ready to use it, you can either just grate it whole and ha- then have the zest and the and the juice um, just like grate it from frozen. Or you can thaw it out and then juice it, and it will be fine. Wow. I know. <laughs> That's my question. Oh, my God. The things are funny, uh, interesting during the time of isolation. Uh, so <laughs> what about you, Paul Michael? What's your question? <laughs> um, I feel like it should be cooking related. Uh, it's it doesn't not. have to be. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> it, it's truly not. Um, okay, I have two One is my roommates and I have been doing such a great job of communicating honestly and like with vulnerability and like setting boundaries because we all are in this home all of the time. And how many roommates do you have? Two. Okay. And I have been so proud of our just like grace and generosity with each other. Um, during this time it's been i don't know it's just been i've i've been that has been a total glimmer of the week is like wow when you state your needs then other people have the opportunity to either um fulfill or deny them and you know at least it's all out there on the table so i i love that and then the second one is uh have you listened to Fiona Apple's new album no but it's on my list oh. everybody's talking about it Everyone's yeah. talking about it because here's the thing. Is it a, would I describe it as easy listening? I would not. <laughs> but it has <laughs> done things like it has made me change my mind about what an album can be. Mm. Because it's not, I, it makes me a little anxious. It makes me like, a little emotional and moody, but it also, she's doing something really smart with the way that she has crafted this album. And it feels like she is being so authentic to her own artistic voice. So I highly recommend it because as an artist, it like confirmed things in me. I mean, we know when we are being lied to and we know when we are being told the truth and I feel like she's telling the truth throughout this whole album oh that's so cool were you a fan of her before this album or is this a new discovery for you um you know like she I knew who she was she would like come up on my Pandora remember Pandora (laughs) (laughs) she would like come up on my Ingrid Michaelson Pandora uh in the 11th grade um (laughs) but but this is my first time listening to a full album of hers, and I, I'm I'm really loving what I'm finding. Cool. All right. Cool. Well, I'll have to check that out. While I'm slicing my green onions on the diagonal. Yes. Yeah, uh... <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on to the show, Paul Michael. Totally. Thanks yeah. for having me. This has just been the absolute greatest. I think you're both so wonderful. You're so wonderful. And listeners, <laughs> don't forget to check out um paul michael's play the goat or who is simone you won't be disappointed it's a great read all right that was our interview with 
Paul Michael Thompson. I hope you all enjoyed it. So just a friendly reminder, listeners, I think you know the drill. Uh, We just want to say, if you enjoyed the episode, make sure you like, subscribe, share with your friends, or anyone who's interested in playwriting or theater, you know? Uh, Please be sure to reach out to us with comments, questions, thoughts. We read every one of them. We read um, your amazing emails and DMs. Um, and <laughs> we'd love to see how, you know, we could feature it and talk about it on the show as always. So yeah, that's, that's the fun thing about this thing called podcasting y'all. And if you have any suggestions about, uh, plays for our, um, play of the month discussion or topics for future episodes, please send them our way. Yeah. And if you are a playwright, actor, director, designer, artistic director, all the things, or one of those things, or anything, uh, <laughs> and you're like interested in being on the show, again, a lot of our uh, guests have, you know, reached out to us and you know, wanting to talk and just talk about theater. So uh, you can be that guest too. Just reach out if you want. Uh, you want know no pressure. You know what? Take your time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and. And also, I'm just curious to know, you know, what are you all doing during this time of isolation, during this pandemic? What are you doing to make theater? Maybe not make theater, but I'm just curious. Yeah. We want to hear from you. Yeah. All right. Until next time. Good day. Good day.